We are continuing our series in Nehemiah. Uh, we will finish Nehemiah after we finish Nehemiah 8. Um, and then we'll move on to something else. Beginning here at Nehemiah 8 and verse 1, Nehemiah called for a massive worship service. He invited a scribe named Ezra to address this Jerusalem congregation. Ezra, like Nehemiah, had also come into Judah and Jerusalem from the Persian Empire. He held a position there that would be comparable to Secretary of State for Hebrew Affairs. Ezra was an ancient Jewish people and scribe. Scribes copied the ancient scriptures and were also experts in the Mosaic Law. Notice Nehemiah 8, starting at verse 1. Now all the people gathered together as one man in the open square that was in front of the water gate. And they told Ezra, the scribe, to bring the book of the law of Moses. The book of the law of Moses was the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Old Testament, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. Moses authored all of them. Those books contain the ancient Mosaic law, the Pentateuch or uh, the Torah. Um, all describe those books. Bring the book of the law of Moses, which the Lord had commanded Israel. Notice the phrase, all the people gathered together as one man. Those words, all the people, are mentioned 11 times in this chapter, meaning that this was a unified congregation. All the residents at Jerusalem, and we can call them Jerusalemites, had gotten together and asked Ezra to read to them from the Hebrew Bible. In the Hebrew language, the Hebrew Bible is called the Tanakh, and the Hebrew Bible is our Old Testament, although the Hebrew Bible was recorded in ancient Hebrew, and uh, our Old Testament is in our own language. Remember, the average person couldn't afford to own his own copy of Scripture, since at that time, the biblical text had to be hand-copied. Uh, this was some 18 and a half centuries before Johann Gutenberg invented the printing press. I might add, the first book printed uh, from the Gutenberg press was a Latin edition of the Bible. It required a Masoretic scribe working continuously with meticulous precision more than 10 months, 10 months to copy just one Hebrew Old Testament. Bibles were so expensive, the average person couldn't afford one. That meant that only those that were priests and the richer classes of people uh, had access to the scriptures. Since Ezra was a priest and a scribe, the people wanted him to bring out his copy of the Torah, the Pentateuch, and read it to them. From that point on, what happened at Jerusalem was the result of the people's response to Ezra reading the scripture. There were three responses mentioned in this chapter. Response one, there was an understanding of the scriptures. An understanding. That response is found in verses 1 through 8. A second response, there was a rejoicing in the scriptures. That's found in verses 9 through 12. The people rejoiced after reading the reading of scripture. Response three, there was an obedience to the scriptures. Obedience, that response is found in verses 13 through 18. Those three things summarized the people's response to Ezra reading the scripture. First, there was an understanding, then a rejoicing, 
and then an act of obedience. Verse 2, so Ezra the priest brought the law, the books of the Mosaic law, the Pentateuch, the Torah, before the assembly of men and women, and all who could hear with understanding on the first day of the seventh month. Notice the phrase, and all who could hear with understanding. That meant that only those Jerusalemites that were older and mature enough to understand Ezra's reading and teaching were permitted to be a part of these worship sessions. And that implies that infants and smaller children were not permitted to be there. From our most recent message, we learned that the total number of Jerusalemites that potentially could have been a part of this congregation would have been almost 50,000 people. So the question I have is, who was going to manage the nurseries and babysit the smaller children for those almost 50,000 people? Verse 3, then he, Ezra, read from it, read from the Torah, in the open square that was in front of the water gate from morning until midday before the men and women and those who could understand and the ears of all the people were attentive to the book of the law this is interesting no one nodded off no one fell asleep that massive congregation was in unison altogether totally attentive to the reading of the scriptures that's impressive Verse 4, so Ezra the scribe stood on a platform of wood, which they had made for the purpose, and beside him at his right hand stood 13 men whose names I cannot pronounce. So we're moving on to verse 5. Sorry. I have limitations. Uh, and Ezra opened the book in the sight of all the people, for he was standing above all the people, and when he opened it, when he opened the Torah to read, all the people stood up. Verse 6, And Ezra blessed the Lord, the great God. Then all the people answered, Amen. Amen means so be it. Amen, amen. A word of affirmation. While lifting up their hands, and they bowed their heads, and worshiped the Lord with their faces to the ground. So standing together as a congregation... As scriptures being read, reciting amen repeatedly, lifting up our hands, and even bowing our faces to the ground are each considered acceptable forms of worship. After reading this, it seems we have biblical permission to be more demonstrative in worship than we are. Sometimes we resemble the church of the frozen chosen. We're just stiff. <laughs> We can attend a professional football game and scream our lungs out and we're considered fans. If at church, though, we lift our hands in praise and say amen, then we're fanatics. There's, something's wrong there. No, we need to loosen up. We need to say amen more. Amen. Pretty quick. That, that was good. Okay. Verse 7. Verse 7 mentions another 13 men whose names I am also unable to pronounce. Notice, though, at the end of this verse, those men helped the people to understand the law, and the people stood in their place. Verse 8, So they, Ezra, and those men that assisted him, read distinctly from the book in the law of God, the Torah, the Pentateuch, and they gave the sense. 
and helped them, helped the congregation to understand the reading. It is interesting that six times in this one chapter, we find the word understanding mentioned. The Bible is not some magical book that changes people just because someone reads it. Scripture has to be understood in someone's mind first before it can penetrate his heart and release its life-changing influence. We just mentioned that only those that were old enough and mature enough to understand the biblical text were permitted to be a part of that congregation. That's the reason we have children's classes available, so that children can learn and understand at a more age-appropriate level. Small children find it difficult sitting through this more adult service. Sermons in this room are created for an audience of about fifth grade and older. Now, please don't misunderstand that. Children of all ages are welcome to attend this service, but contingent on the maturation of the child in question, it might be more beneficial uh, for them to attend an age-appropriate children's class. That, though, is a parental decision. I remember, as a child, begging my parents to let me attend big church. This was big church. Uh, and I started that in first grade. And my parents permitted me to do that. I still remember sitting in big church uh, beside my parents. Um, so there are some exceptions. In round numbers, the total Jerusalem population was 50,000 people. Even if we subtract the babies and smaller children, the remaining number would still have been in excess of 40,000 people. That's a sizable congregation. Notice that Ezra brought out the book of the law, meaning he brought out the law of Moses, and uh, again, the Pentateuch, the Korah, the first five books of the Old Testament. It's possible that Ezra read from a complete scroll of the Old Testament text, which, as we said earlier, would have been an extremely expensive document. Notice in verse 4 that Ezra stood on a platform similar to our stage. It was a raised, elevated platform made from wood, as this is, and it elevated him so that all the people could see him. He was above all the people so the people could see and hear him better just as we do in our modern churches. Ezra faced the public square where all the people were in front of him. And behind him was the Jerusalem wall and the water gate. Those structures, that wall and gate, acted as a sounding board to help project his voice to this large congregation. There was no electronic amplification at that time. So those structured acted as a sounding board and projected his voice. Then in verse 4, Ezra named 13 men that stood beside him on the platform. There were six men on his right hand and seven men on his left hand. Then in verse 7, 13 more men are mentioned that assisted Ezra in teaching the people. So first, Ezra brought out the book. Second, he opened the book that existed in the form of a long scroll. Uh, not unlike architectural drawings and plans rolled up. Not unlike a roll of wallpaper, although I don't even know if that exists at this time. I don't know, but that's what it would resemble. Ezra lifted up the scroll and unrolled it. He unrolled it to the passages he would read, and the people that were seated in the public square in front of him honored that reading of Scripture in altogether standing up. So the people stood up 
as an act of respect for the reading of Scripture. That's something we sometimes do here. Um, it's not a direct command from God uh, to do this. It's not an imperative, but it is a good thing uh, to stand as we honor God's Word, and we sometimes do that. I want us to see, though, just how long the people stood. The people stood for as long as Ezra read. And according to verse 3, notice, Ezra read from the Torah from the morning until midday. The word morning in the original Hebrew language meant light, as in daylight. So it's probable Ezra started reading just after daybreak at about 6 a.m. 6 a.m. Ezra then continued reading until midday, which would have been noon. So the people continued to stand as long as Ezra continued to read, which meant that the congregation stood and listened to him read for five to six hours. We're assuming there's some breaks in there, but that's a long time. And according to verse 18, he repeated that same reading schedule for a solid week. And each time he read the scriptures, the people stood up and listened for as long as it took him to read. Now, notice the drastic contrast between then and now. Instead of standing in scorching Middle East desert sun for hours, we sit on padded pews in a comfortable air-conditioned room for no more than an hour and a half, and most often less than that. So compared to these ancient Jerusalemites, we're sort of pathetic, actually. Um, and that includes me. I couldn't stand and read for that entire period of time. None of us could stand and listen to someone read for that entire period of time. In this modern age, we don't have the same strength and stamina those ancient Jerusalemites had. So we don't need to duplicate that exercise, but I wish, I wish we had some of that same desire those people had to hear the Bible read and explained. On a recent visit to a church in an undisclosed location in Asia, a man from the U.S. named Dennis sat next to a small, older woman whose hands were so crippled she couldn't hold the hymn book. After the service, he turned to her and said, Do you have a Bible? No, she said in disappointment. He said, Would you like to have one? Oh, yes, 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 very much. As her face brightened. Dennis said, If you would come back to my hotel, I will give you one. And then as the two of them walked to his hotel, Dennis asked the woman about her hands. She said this, The communist soldiers... We're searching for Bibles, hymn books, and religious material, and came to my house. I had hidden my Bible, get this, underneath the cold ashes of my stove. But those men knew all the places to search, and the men found the Bible. And as the men were taking my Bible, I grabbed it from them and said, Oh, please, don't take my Bible. It's all I have that tells me about Jesus. The soldiers responded, it's nothing but a book of fables. Give it to us, old woman. But I cried, please don't take it. Please, it's all I have that tells me about Jesus. That just seemed to infuriate the soldiers, so this man took her outside, 
stripped her naked, put her up on a platform to shame her before the crowds. And for four solid hours, she sat there with the Bible clutched to her naked breast. Her head was down as the crowds mocked and spit on her. People thought she had assumed that posture because she was just ashamed of her situation. And she was ashamed, but she was actually praying. She continued after four hours of public shame and humiliation. The soldiers again tried to take my Bible, but I held on to it. And I said, please don't take it. It's all I have that tells me about Jesus. In anger, those men spread her out in the dirt with her hands and arms stretched out over her head and then beat her hands with a hammer until her hands were a bloody pulp. She was permanently disfigured and disabled, and to that moment she couldn't even feed herself. That was the price she paid because she wanted to keep just a single copy of the Bible. And then 90% of the households in this nation own multiple Bibles. At the same time, the statistics on personal Bible reading are continuing to drop. God help us. Let me reconstruct what happened here. Ezra read the Hebrew scripture in the presence of all the people. And then at certain points throughout that reading, these men that assisted Ezra also acted as readers and teachers and circulated out among the congregation. Those men divided the congregation into smaller groups and explained to those smaller groups more completely what Ezra had just read. We assume those groups uh, meeting together probably were able to sit down uh, as these men uh, shared with them the text that had been read and helped them to understand that. So Ezra read from the Torah and then his assistants mingled among the people, divided them into smaller groupings and explained the scripture Ezra had just read with more clarity. That was the procedure Ezra and his assistants used to cause the people to understand the scriptures. Notice verse 8. So they, meaning Ezra and those assistants of his, read distinctly. Distinctly means there's a definite reading, an apparent reading, an unmistakable reading and understanding. Read distinctly from the book and the law of God, Ezra and his associates read specific passages from the Torah, and then notice the second half of this verse. And they gave the sense, the sense of the reading, and helped them to understand the reading. It is so essential we understand what God has said. In reading a biblical text, the question we must answer is this, and what did God mean by what God said? What did God mean here by what God said here? God has authored all scripture. He used 40 men over a period of 16 centuries to record his words. Those words, though, originated in his mouth. God has authored all scripture, so we must determine what he meant by what he said. A New Testament example of that is in Luke 24, verses 44 and 45. Then he, Jesus, said to them, These are the words which I spoke to you while I was still with you, that all things must be fulfilled which were written in the law of Moses, and the prophets, and the Psalms concerning me. Verse 45, And he, Jesus, opened their understanding that they might comprehend 
the Scriptures. Comprehend means to grasp mentally, to make sense of, to understand. It's not enough to read Scripture. It's not enough to hear Scripture read. It is essential we understand what we read and what we hear read. Something that frustrates me, um, and this doesn't happen often because I don't have occasion to do this, but uh, I, I visit churches. If I'm not here, I'm in church. Uh, sometimes, multiple churches on a Sunday. Um, and something that frustrates me is sitting through a 45-minute sermon and hearing someone read passage after passage, verse after verse after verse, and then never telling me what those verses meant. I can read for myself. I often will need help understanding what I'm reading. And then this person that does this is so self-deceived, he actually considers that biblical teaching. No, it is not. That's not teaching. That's laziness and being irresponsible. My favorite professor, Howard Hendricks from Dallas Theological Seminary, he was a prof there more than six decades. He said, all things being equal, if there's an effort made on both sides, if the student hasn't learned, then the teacher hasn't taught. If there's no understanding, then the student cannot learn. And if the student wants to learn, and he isn't learning, then the teacher isn't teaching. People, what is the point in reading Scripture if we can't understand what we're reading? Question. Is there some secret formula that can help us better understand what we're reading? No, there isn't a particular formula per se, but it is possible to understand the Bible using an application of certain hermeneutical principles. The situation was that Jesus was on the road to Emmaus. This was just after his resurrection from the dead. And on that road, he met two of his disciples. Uh, not two of the twelve, two other disciples. Uh, and he began to instruct them. Luke 24, verse 27. And beginning at Moses, remembered Moses recorded the first five Old Testament books. So beginning at the Torah, the Pentateuch, and all the prophets, meaning all the Old Testament prophetical books, including both major and minor prophets, he, Jesus, expounded to them in all the scriptures, the things concerning himself. Jesus quoted some Old Testament verses that connected him to the promised Jewish Messiah, meaning Jesus quoted Messianic prophecies. We've mentioned Messianic prophecies often. Messianic prophecies were prophecies. Remember, prophecies were predictions. Prophecies, predictions made in the Old Testament about the promised Messiah that were then each fulfilled in Jesus some centuries after that in the New Testament. The text reads that Jesus expounded the scriptures to those men. It's interesting that this word expounded in the original Greek language is from the root word hermeuo. Hermeuo. That word hermeuo had its origin in the name Aramis. Aramis was considered an ancient Greek god. And uh, he acted as a messenger for the other gods. He was considered the god of language and rhetoric. 
That word hermayuo from Aramis means to interpret or to explain thoroughly. And, and that is what Jesus was doing. Jesus quoted the scriptures and then he explained those scriptures thoroughly. He interpreted them for these men. And from that word, hermeuo, we have derived our modern English word hermeneutics. Hermeneutics. Now don't miss this. In a generic sense, hermeneutics doesn't have a religious connotation per se. In a generic sense, hermeneutics is the science of interpretation. The science of interpretation, and it is applicable to all forms of literature. Hermeneutics is the criterion that is used to interpret literature. From the record courier, and I might add, the record courier is often full of mistakes and grammatical errors. And the reason I know is Hopi points them out to me. She's a proofreading freak. It's like, I said, stop it, I don't want to hear it. Just, no. But the record courier, to you know, academic textbooks and technical manuals, to mystery novels, to Shakespeare, to Harvard's famous five-foot shelf of classics, it doesn't matter. Uh, hermeneutics is applicable to all forms of literature. Biblical hermeneutics, though, is more specific. It is a science of biblical interpretation. Biblical interpretation. Let me mention four models for understanding the Bible, interpreting the text. Model one is the proof text model. The proof text model. Proof texting occurs when biblical enforcement is needed to prove a point or establish a particular position and the interpreter is forced to find scripture that would support that point or position. Proof texting isn't necessarily a bad thing in principle. But the problem is those that proof text tend to ignore the context of the passages that are used to support their point or position, and that can create fallacies. An example of that, members of the Watchtower Bible and Tract Society, more often called Jehovah Witnesses. Jehovah Witnesses use proof texting almost exclusively. It is estimated Jehovah Witnesses use just 6% of the Bible in their literature. And the 6% that is cited consists of verses wrenched out of context and used to reinforce their heretical teaching. Former President Jimmy Carter is still alive at 97 and a half. That's amazing. And I understand he still has his mind, his faculties. I once had the privilege of meeting President Carter's former pastor. Former pastor because he is now in heaven. He died sometime after that exchange from a, from a brain tumor. He was a good man. And I understood from a friend that he was close as his pastor, close to all the Carters. So I asked him for some insight into the former president. And he said to me, we don't agree on all things political, but I believe the president is a genuine and sincere Christian brother. And he's as real as it gets. He's genuine. And that was his assessment. And I have no reason to doubt that. Uh, I might mention that those of us that are older remember that the Carter administration was a most unfortunate administration. Most all that could go wrong did go wrong under his 
presidency. Carter's administration was so bad that after he left office, some historians have considered him the worst president in modern times. If he was, he's not anymore. He's probably the happiest man, on, happiest man on earth. So relieved to pass that title on to someone else. President Carter taught an adult Bible Sunday school class at the Maranatha Baptist Church in Plains, Georgia for more than five decades. Into his 90s, still teaching. And he made this statement about proof texting. He said, quote, Christians can buttress their arguments on almost any subject by emphasizing certain selected verses. That's proof texting. And then claiming those selected verses should be applied in all situations. But when we do this, we're using the Bible as a rationalization for our own personal preferences, which we assume are correct and often are not. Most entertainment-driven market-driven mega-churches use this proof-texting model, and sometimes the results are disastrous. Model two, a second model, is the historical critical model. The historical critical model, this model determines what the text meant at the time it occurred in the historical record, and that's a good thing because we have to start there, but the problem is this model never goes past that, it never connects that interpretation to the present, and never builds a bridge from the past to the present. So it is in that sense inadequate. Model three is the reader response model. The reader response model. This model emphasizes the need for the interpreter to determine, don't miss this, and determine what the text means to him. It answers the question, what do these verses mean to me? The problem is this is a subjective model. Because each of us could have a different twist and perspective on the text. So there's no authoritative interpretation. Because we each have our own perspective and interpretation. If we teach that the meaning of a text is what it means to me, then scripture could have as many meanings as it does readers. The appropriate approach to understanding a biblical text is not what the text means to me, but what does this text mean if I didn't exist? Because the biblical text means what it means apart from us. Model four is the syntactical theological model. The syntactical theological model. This model emphasizes an understanding of how words and phrases relate to one another. That's syntax. How words and phrases relate to one another in a biblical text. And especially from a theological perspective. According to this model, the meaning of a single part of a text, such as a single verse or a single phrase in a single verse is connected to an understanding of the entire text itself. 
As an example, if we were putting together a 500-piece jigsaw puzzle, which I've never done, life is too short, I've never attempted that, but if we were, we first want to see the big picture of the completed puzzle on the front of the box so we could then better understand how the smaller pieces fit together. In a similar sense, we need to see the big picture of an entire text first before we are able to understand the smaller pieces of that text, meaning individual verses. So these are four models for understanding and interpreting Scripture. I contend Scripture is sufficient. I contend if Scripture is sufficient to address our life issues, and it is, then it is essential we understand the exact meaning of a particular Scripture that is applicable to our situation. I'm going to cite some real-life instances that necessitate a sound hermeneutic to understand what God wants us to do in a particular situation. These are on the note sheet. These aren't hypothetical. These are actual situations. I have a dozen more examples, but there isn't enough time for those. Let's start at the beginning. A Christian man lost his job during the most recent economic recession of 2008 and 2009. Romans 8.28 reads, And we know that all things all things including unemployment, work together for good to those that love God. So this now unemployed man interpreted that phrase from that verse to mean that he lost his job in order that God might give him a better one. So he turned down jobs. He turned down a number of lower and equal paying job opportunities as he waited for that better job. He was convinced God wanted him to have. Because of that, he remained unemployed for more than two years before he accepted another job, and that time off created severe financial difficulties for him. Question, do you agree with his interpretation of that passage and his subsequent actions? I'm not going to answer these um, because this is sort of homework, which I know everyone appreciates. Uh, Proverbs 22, verse 28, contains this commandment. Do not remove the ancient landmark which your fathers have set. Question, does this verse mean, A, do not change from how we've always done something, B, do not steal, C, do not remove the guidepost that direct travelers from town to town, D, none of the above, E, all of the above. That's an interesting one. In Matthew 25, 22, and this is more difficult, in Matthew 5.22, Jesus said, Someone that calls a brother a fool is in danger of hell fire. And then he proceeds to call the Pharisees fools himself in Matthew 23. Question, how do you explain this apparent contradiction? Another example, people in the positive confession movement believe that Christians should never never experience illness and disease. And base that argument in part on 3 John verse 2. That verse reads, Beloved, I pray that you, and this was addressed to John's friend Gaius, I pray that you, Gaius, may prosper in all things 
and be in health. Question, in using that phrase, and be in health, did the author John mean that God guarantees us good health? Some believers, and some atheists, atheists who, um, who do not believe the biblical text at all, but atheists sometimes will resort to using the Bible if they feel it adds to their argumentation. So some believers and some non-believers use Acts 4, verses 32 through 35 as the basis for a form of communal Christian communism. So question, is that what this text is encouraging? Is it encouraging socialism and communism? A couple experiencing marital conflict comes to you for counseling about a certain matter. The husband is convinced he needs another car and wants to finance it since he doesn't have enough funds to purchase it in cash. His wife, basing her argument on Romans 13, verse 8, where Paul said, owe no one anything, she believes it would be wrong to go into debt to purchase the car. The husband, though, doesn't feel that particular verse is applicable to their situation, and he wants to know your opinion. What do you tell him? And no fair calling Dave Ramsey. It has been stated that the Bible prophesies the use of Christmas trees in Jeremiah 10, verses 3 and 4. The Jehovah Witness movement um, forbids celebrating Christmas, forbids Christmas trees as pagan. Uh, Some Christians perceive that. Um, So does the Bible prophesy Christmas trees? Is that a valid interpretation of those verses? Certain denominations use the sixth commandment that states you shall not murder. The authorized version reads you shall not kill. Uh, It is better translated as you shall not murder. Exodus 20 verse 13. Um, Some use that verse as a justification for opposing capital punishment. Question, do you agree? And if not, how would you explain that phrase? You're part of a Bible study discussion group where someone argues a point, and his point is based on an Old Testament passage. Someone else responds, but that's from the Old Testament, so it isn't applicable to us in the New Testament age. That was then, this is now. Question, as the class discussion leader, how would you handle that situation? Pacifists have used a phrase from Matthew 26, 52, as an argument that Christians shouldn't participate in the military. That verse reads, But Jesus said to him, Peter, put your sword in its place, for all who take the sword will perish by the sword. Question, is that a valid conclusion from this text? One final example. The LDS Church, the Latter-day Saints Church, Mormonism, uh, has amassed the largest genealogical records in existence. Mormons have accumulated some 3.5 billion ancestral images that are stored in the climate-controlled Granite Mountain Record Vault carved into the mountains east of Salt Lake City. The doors at that vault's entrance weigh 14 tons and are designed to survive 
a nuclear impact. Mormons think this is serious stuff. Mormons accumulate genealogical records so that its members can participate in ritualistic baptism for the dead. The basis for that strange practice is found in just one phrase, in just one verse from 1 Corinthians 15, verse 29. Why then are they baptized for the dead? Question. So should we baptize for the dead as Mormons do? And the list goes on and on and on. Starting next time, we are going to address four principles that can enable us to interpret and understand each of the passages and questions we just mentioned. Before we finish, though, let me define some hermeneutical words used to interpret biblical text. Three words, exegesis, eisegesis, and narcissus. Exegesis means a pulling from, an extracting out of. Exegesis is the process of someone extracting the meaning of a biblical text out from the actual text itself. Exegesis is the process of someone pulling from the text the essence and meaning of that text. I attempt to practice exegesis because exegesis is the most appropriate and accurate process to use in understanding scripture and in answering the question what did God mean by what God said eisegesis though is different eisegesis means a putting into a putting in or an insertion into eisegesis is the process of someone reading his particular bias and or particular opinions into a biblical text that is not what we are to do if someone is imposing his own bias and own opinions on the scripture then he is causing the text to mean what he wants it to mean instead of what God intended for it to mean I should repeat that if someone is imposing his own bias and opinions onto a biblical text then he is causing the text to mean what he wants it to mean instead of what God intended for it to mean essentially I said Jesus misrepresents God and that's criminal in a spiritual sense consider an example a recent example reverend Brandon Robertson is an LGBTQ activist. He's an author. He is a pastor, a pretend pastor. He is not a true biblical shepherd because he is a gay man. And he's huge on TikTok. He has almost 190,000 followers and 4.5 million likes. And all of that has happened just since the beginning of COVID. He was even mentioned in Rolling Stone's annual hot list of notable persons. Now, I've seen some of his videos, and I'm seeing that, and I'm going, that face is familiar to me. Um, and I thought about it, and now I remember where I'd seen that face before. Now, if you think you're, like, really sharp, and uh, you think you know the famous face he resembles, then see me after the service. Three people guessed right after the first service. We're going to see if you're brighter than the first service people. So just tell me. 
Okay? The, the, the resemblance is uncanny. It's interesting that Robertson's undergraduate degree is from um, conservative evangelical Moody Bible Institute. Um, he is ordained in the Disciples of Christ denomination, which is one of the most liberal denominations in this nation. He has since apostatized from the historic Christian faith. He claims to be a Christian pastor, but he denies most all essential Christian doctrine. He denies that Jesus and Jesus alone is the open sesame into heaven. According to Robertson, there is no hell. And Robertson said he doesn't know what happened after the, res after the crucifixion, meaning he has serious doubts about the resurrection. He teaches Jesus has freed us from gender. He even argues that Jesus was a racist. On and on. Brandon considers himself a public theologian, whatever that is. And uh, he's gifted at hermeneutical nonsense. A graphic example of that is from John 11. John 11 records Jesus resurrecting his friend Lazarus from the dead. Jesus was standing at the entrance to the tomb where Lazarus had been buried. Notice John 11, verse 43. He, Jesus, cried with a loud voice, Lazarus, come forth. Someone suggested if he hadn't identified Lazarus, every grave would have opened and everybody would have been resurrected. So he was more specific, Lazarus, come forth. Verse 44, and he who had died, Lazarus, came out of the grave. Lazarus came out of the grave. Lazarus had been dead. Jesus commanded he come out, and he was made alive and came out of the grave, bound hand and foot with grave clothes, and his face wrapped with a cloth. Jesus said to them, loose him and let him go. Don't miss this. According to Reverend Robinson, Jesus calling Lazarus, out of the tomb is to be understood as Jesus wanting LGBTQ people to come out of the closet. What has happened? Mr. Robertson has injected and imposed his bias LGBTQ position onto and into the biblical text. People, that is heretical eisegesis. It's blasphemous. But that's where we are. Narcissus is a compound word. It is the combination of narcissism and eisegesis. Eisegesis, as we just said, is someone injecting his bias into Scripture. And narcissism is an excessive interest and admiration of oneself. So narcissus is where someone's ego causes him to interpret Scripture as if it is about himself. So according to nice Narcissus Jesus, each biblical promise mentioned in Scripture is for himself. Even if the actual context argues it was intended for someone else, he interprets it as being for him. Each biblical narrative, each biblical character is about himself. In the account of David and Goliath, this person sees himself as David, conquering giants and gigantic problems and obstacles, just as David did. 
He personifies David until David met Bathsheba and then not so much. One more example. I read about someone that committed gross eisegesis because he superimposed his personal opinion onto a passage of scripture and it caused incredible relational chaos. A couple needed marriage counseling and made an appointment to see a pastoral staff member, a counselor at a large congregation. After 30 minutes of counseling and sorting through some serious marriage conflict, this pastor said, I'm just curious. There are some substantial and almost irreconcilable differences here. I'm just curious, how was it that you two came to be married to one another? The husband said, oh, uh, it was a sermon that the pastor preached at our church. And this pastor counselor was curious. He said, okay, so just what was this sermon about? This husband said, he preached on Jericho. This counselor is scratching his head. He's puzzled. Jericho, I don't understand and what does Jericho have to do with marriage? His husband responded, okay, it's like this. The pastor said that God's people claimed the city of Jericho, marched around it seven times, and the walls fell down. The pastor said if a man believed God had given him a certain woman, he could claim her for himself, march around her seven times, and the walls of her heart would fall down. That's what I did, and that's the reason we got married. This pastor counselor was stunned. He was flabbergasted sitting there. He questioned, are you being serious? That's, that's not actually true, is it? You're just kidding me, right? This husband insisted, no, 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 I'm not kidding. It's absolutely true. In fact, there were some other couples in our church that got married because of that very same sermon. Each time I stand behind this pulpit, each time I read from a biblical text, and each time I attempt to explain what God said and what God meant by what God said, I do so understanding that at some future moment in time, I will stand before God himself and give an account of what I have done here. And that weighs heavy on me because I do not for one second want to misrepresent God and I do not want to misrepresent what God has said in His Word. Amen. So you should pray for me. Thank you. Let's bow our heads. Father, thank you for your Word. <laughs> It's been said that the Bible is the most used book of all time, and it's probably the most misused book of all time, because people attempt to cause it to say what you never intended it to say, and that's so sad and tragic. God, help us to be people of discernment. Help us to be careful how we read and understand Scripture, and I hope that this miniature series will help us do that. And I thank you so much for your goodness and your patience with us. You blessed us all more than we deserve. And I thank you. So take this message and use it to the minds and hearts of your people. 
to make a difference in each of us. And I pray and I thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.